I'll talk a little bit later in the week in Hashem, about Rav Amitel's pension for saying things briefly, as opposed to another well-known pioneering Rosh Hashim of Yeshiva, who had a pension for saying things at great length, and what the value of each and what the benefit of each and how they complemented each other. But one of the advantages of saying things brief is that Ramita would always have his knack for saying one line dramatically. Typically, Ramita would be the last speaker at a bar mitzvah, at a convocation, at a gathering. He'd be the you know, the builder. Everyone else would speak, and then Ramita. But you know how it is when there are five speakers on the docket, and each speaker takes a little more time. And so sometimes it got to the point that Ramita, being the last speaker, basically had no time left. <laughs> you know, let's say it was Arab Shabbos, and he had to get back for Shabbos, so... There were times that say in a bar mitzvah or just went a little overtime, but sometimes... So this was the scene. And I'll tell you the story, and then I'll tell you what the story reflects. It's, it's obvious, but this was the scene. The entire Gush alumni crowd base, maybe 3,000 people, I think, 25, a lot of people, were gathered in Yushalayim, maybe a little less, in Hechel Shlomo. This is before Gush was partial owner of Hechel Shlomo, but we gathered in Hechel Shlomo, which was a big center in Yushalayim, center of town, and it was Rav Lichtenstein's maybe 70th birthday, something of that nature, 70th birthday. My mind played tricks on me whether it was Yom Yushalayim, which was his birthday, or like Bomer, which is around Yom Yushalayim. But either way, it was in Arab Shabbos. That was the scene. So here it is, Arab Shabbos. Nice, long, summer Arab Shabbos, but it's still Arab Shabbos. And it's nice and hot. I don't think there's air conditioning. And thousands of alumni were gathering to celebrate Rav Lichtenstein's 70th birthday. So each speech went longer than the next. And now it's 2 o'clock or somewhere in that range. And we have a lot of time, but it's kind of comfortable to be there for two, two and a half hours, Erev Shabbos, in the hot Yushalayim. You know, Ramitel gets up to speak, and he had a lot to say, I'm sure, but he had no time to say it. So he got up and he had one, one not one line, but a one-liner. He said like this. I want to tell you the difference between Rav Lichtenstein I remember him saying it like it was yesterday in other Rosh Hashivas. Most Rosh Hashivas won Chasidim. You were of Lichtenstein, you weren't Talmidim. Chasid is very pious and devoted, listens to everything his Rebbe tells him. Talmid, he raised his finger and said, listens to nothing his Rebbe said. But he sat down. So we'll talk later on this week about Ravitel and brevity because it's a topic all to oneself and to understand why brevity is important sometimes and where it's important in life. But this story, of course, highlights something very, very unique about Rav Amitav. He empowered Talmidim in this yeshiva in ways that I think were very revolutionary. The classic yeshiva model is the Rebbe's, the Rosh Yeshiva, the Talmidim. In some cases it's more hierarchical, in some cases it's less hierarchical, but that's the, that's the way yeshiva's built. I go to most yeshivas in the world, many yeshivas in the world, the Rebbeim, we're all sitting up front. And the Talmidim are sitting, which is one very powerful form of education. No one is denying it. Rav Amitel felt, based on all sorts of reasons, the timing, where we were in history, again, you're dealing with people. This is a yeshiva built by an initiative of Talmidim. Rav Amitel didn't build the yeshiva. Normally, Rashi says, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm a Rosh Hashiva. Let me build the yeshiva and go draft some Talmidim. Here, some of the heroes of the Six-Day War, led by Hanan Parat, led by Yol Benun, said, let's make a yeshiva in the Gush, which is now being restored to um, Yisrael's sovereignty. They made a yeshiva, they said, wait a second, we need a Rosh Yeshiva. 
And they, they, at some point, they were about to start the yeshiva without a Rosh Hashiva. It's been fun. They, they, just, you know, we, they were very adamant. Chan Paratzev, Hasadik was adamant. We need a Rosh Hashiva. So it was a student-led initiative. It was a Talmudim. And that always became, and it was picture-perfect for Rami Tal's personality. He didn't want people to clone him. He would say very often another famous line, Ani amitalim ketanim. I don't want many Amitals, it shouldn't be like me. And it was a whole different way to create a Rebbe. And the irony is because he didn't want Kavod, and he didn't demand our Kavod, and he tried to get out of the way of Kavod, then that's why we gave him more Kavod. Because the people in life that you really are Mechabed, the people that you know are not in it for their own ego, for their own, not that people are ego, but there's always a sense of people that, you know, how much, and he, there was no need, and, and this happened, another mythic story, just to show you the, the yeshiva opened on Kimmel Kislev. There are diaries documenting the first day that the great yeshiva in Gush Etzion would open. Everyone gathered. First day of yeshiva, opening pitch. One person's missing. Ravamitav. How can you not show up on the first day of yeshiva? This is the long-awaited opening. Like, okay, you're, you're sick, you're tired. Put yourself together and get yourself over there. He didn't come intentional. Because he wanted to tell me them to know this is their yeshiva. And it's not that he's lording over the proceedings, sitting on some high throne, Rambanisa, He started the Yeshiva, I'll show up day two, which is amazing when you think about it. Imagine not showing up the opening, like you're the starting pitcher, you'll show up to day one. And, you know, you guys, you, you, you take it, you've got it, you take it from here. That's why famous stories where Ravitaal got up in a very famous, um, in, as I told you before, in 1982, there were Christian Arabs who Israel were allied with fighting the Lebanon war who entered a refugee camp for Muslim Arabs, Muslim, yeah, Muslim Arabs, and they massacred them. It was called Sabra and Shatia. And most of the establishment wanted to just ignore the situation. Ravitel felt morally bound. And this was really a turning point where Ravitel broke a little with the classic right-wing Dati-Lomi political parties that he felt were being too blinded by politics and land and less sensitive to human toll and, and whatever. It became more, some would say, left. I don't like the words left-wing, but certainly more... Um, amenable to the concept of a peace treaty, which many people you know, didn't fully understand or of Amitel, and he gave, gave up and gave a rousing, rousing sicha about how terrible the situation was, that we have to take moral responsibility. And I think it was either Yol Benon or Yaakov Meidan, as Talmudim, who got up in the base medish and gave a rebuttal in the base medish, defending the other position. And it was completely normal, and Amitel encouraged it. Review Val Sherlo, another one of the leading Datilomi Rabbanim who learned in Yeshiva, might tell, a little older than me, but we were overlapping. He tells the story that he was once at a panel and he was on the panel with Ravamital. And he got up to say ideas which were different from Ravamital because he held opinions that were different from Ravamital. And he was like, he tells, his knees were shaking, he could hardly hold himself together. And he got up and he said, Everything I'm about to say right now is, comes from Ravamital's inspiration, was completely opposite from what Ravamital would say. Ravamital was sitting right there. So I dug it up and said, ah, finally I have a Talmud. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's hard because a lot of Avodah Hashem is hierarchy, and a lot of hierarchy is not just the Kaddish Baruch Hu, but Rabbanim and the Masara and and the irony is we feared him and we loved him because we realized how which is reflective of Kaddish Baruch Hu's ability to make us think that we're independent to empower us and it's harder for Buster for them to do that and it's not always understood by people who didn't see it. What do you mean? I could have told me, but I've told I've told a lot of the of the boys in my shear that 
you know, the best best of the yeshiva is when it's powered by Talmudim. The best moments of the yeshiva is when the Talmudim take initiative and the Talmudim institute something and Talmudim. And, and we really think about that very, very carefully. We're all not the artists that Ragamital was, but we think very carefully, how can we get out of your way? We want to inspire you, we want to teach you, we want to, how can we get out of your way and let you express all the talent? Because you're very talented boys, and for that talent to come through, for you to become leaders, it has to start now. So it's very, very deeply woven into the DNA of the yeshiva. Again, we are. Some of those who are able to calibrate, some of those who are not, but that's their Ravamital story. When a story repeats itself twice, then evidently it's, it's uh, seminal. So Ravamital said at the Ravarin celebration that you're, you want Chassid, you want Tamidim, and Chassid said the same thing to you, you will at a panel. You want Tamidim and finally have Okay, so this week we'll talk about a little bit about brevity. We'll talk a little bit about um, counterintuitive thought. Long-term thinking, we'll talk about spending time with people, not just talking to them, what the difference is between the two. So those are some of the highlights of hopefully some of the stories we'll speak about this week. This is one of my favorite stories because it really captures three different components, three different aspects of Rav Amitel. Evidently, they wanted to open a Mormon missionary in Yerushalayim, and not just in Yerushalayim, but in Give Up Mordechai, Rav Amitel's community. Now, Rav Amital wasn't the official rabbi of the community, and, and that itself is very reflective of the profile he wanted to keep. It was just a balabas, but everyone knew in the community he was who he was. Rav Amital once told someone in some um, informal setting that the Chazanish knew who he was. He, wasn't, he didn't hang out with the Gedolim in that respect, but people knew who Rav Amital was in that generation. And certainly the people in his community looked to him right for quiet leadership. He wasn't the rabbi, he wasn't the official delegate, but they knew that they had a gadol amongst them. So they started circulating a petition that they wanted everyone in the community to sign opposing the opening of this missionary in Givat Mordechai. So they came into Givat Mordechai, it's a community nearby Vagan, where Vamital lived, where the Chevron Yeshiva is, the famous Chevron Yeshiva, relocated from Chevron, the original Slobodka Yeshiva. So they came into Ravamital's apartment one night to offer him this protest to sign. And he kicked him out of the house. So I heard this story from his son, Riviola Amital. We always said, Abba, missionaries, they're going to convert people to Christianity, to Mormons. How can you let them circulate and give up Mordechai? So he told the son, he said, look, these missionaries, they're on a mission, literally. If they don't open and give up Mordechai, they'll open in Petach If they don't open and give up Mordechai, they can open in Tel Aviv. If they don't open in Tel Aviv, they'll open in Haifa. He said, rather they open here and give up Mordechai right near the Hebron Yeshiva. And the Hebron Yeshiva, these Yeshiva Bachram, they'll eat them for breakfast. They'll tear them apart. The Hebron Yeshiva Bachram are always known for being, the word in Hebrew is, even to this day, the Hebron Yeshiva Bachram are called Krishim, Krishim are sharks. And the Hebron Yeshiva, they're very witty, they're very smart, they're very ambitious, they're very confident, even cocky, you know, with the old Slobodka DNA. And we're the Gedolim, Riff Hutner from Slobodka, and the Alt of Slobodka. Everyone knows that the Hebron Yeshivas, it's called a certain shtanz, or shpitzi. Shpitzi is a word in Hebrew for like they They hold highly of themselves, and they're not afraid to mix it up with people ideologically. He says, let them open the missionary to the Hebron Yeshiva. The Hebron Yeshiva guys will tear them apart. And within two, three weeks, they'll close it. Rather than opening it somewhere else, well, they get great attraction, and they'll be more successful. And you know what happened? That's exactly what happened. They opened up the missionary, you know, Mordechai, the Hebron Yeshiva guys, there nothing of it, they tore them to pieces, and um, they closed, and that was it. That was the end of the story. 
So what does this story represent? Really three different features. Number one, what some of the Talmudim of Rav Amital call Ipcha Mistavra. Sometimes you have to view life counterintuitively. There's a certain way we are trained to view life. It becomes cliched. It becomes um, something stereotype. We know what the answers are. We see life th- through certain lenses, but it becomes stale and it becomes detached from reality. And Ramitel had this unique propensity to view life through fresh sets of lenses, to look at things from a new perspective, from a new angle. I mean, 99% of the people in the world would sign their name on the dotted line, let's oppose these missionaries. If Ramitel is thinking, let's think outside of the boxes, we would say. Let's think counterintuitively. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a phrase that really captures what Ramitel tried to do counterintuitively. I'm not sure that you'll fully appreciate it at this stage of your life, but I promise you in 20 years, it's probably the most important phrase of your life. When I say it to adults, they immediately understand what counterintuition is. There's an old phrase, at first I tried to change the world. And then that didn't go so well, so I focused on changing my family. And then when that didn't go well, then I just retracted and focused on changing my own inner life. So Ravamitab would raise his finger whenever he felt like things were stale and stereotyped. He said, shtiyot, shtiyot, like wipe it over, like a windshield wiper, shtiyot, shtiyot, as he'd wave. So that's not the way it really works. He says, first people try to change themselves. When that doesn't work, they try to change their family. When that doesn't work, they try to change the world. It's, it's something that you don't have enough experience to fully appreciate. But a lot of people are out there changing the world, making a difference, leaders. And it's just an excuse because they can't change their family. and They don't necessarily have the... It comes to the expense of family life. It comes to the expense of personal development. But at least when you change the world and everyone's telling you how much of a difference you're making, it could be, in your mind, a substitute for real experience and real inner life and real family relationships. Because after all, I'm so busy. Everyone needs me. Everyone wants me. And again, just store it away one day. One day you'll hear it. One day maybe I'll tell it to you again. We'll make a lot. I think you're, you're laughing because you, you understand a little bit more. Josh, you're a little bit older. You've, been the, you've, seen, you've seen the phenomena of the people that were world beaters, but when you look in their inner life, there's, there's very little happening. Anyway, so that's one thing it demonstrates, counterintuition. That you can't just view things in the stale, accepted, straightforward manner, but you have to see it from different angles. The second thing that it demonstrates is you can't just be concerned with your own Daladamos. Ramitel wasn't just thinking about the impact of the missionaries on Gibbon Mordechai. He was saying, look, we've got an entire country, and right now the team of opponents in Gibbon Mordechai are better equipped to handle these missionaries than the potential arguers or dispu- disputers in Petach Tikvar and Haifa. So maybe we have to absorb a little bit of a challenge and a little bit of a burden because we'll be alleviating it from other parts of the country. And it's that type of collective national thinking that is at the heart of religious Zionism. Right? If you ask what's the one of the sociological differences between the Haredi approach and the national religious approach, is the Haredi approach very much is we, and there's nothing wrong with it, we have to be concerned with the kashras of the food on our plate, literally and figuratively. So in Shemitah, the best way to ensure that food is kosher is to import food from Aza. And a national religious approach is, no, wait a second, you can't pay as a terrorist. <laughs> and, and how am I going to ensure that a Russian citizen in Haifa is totally disinterested in kashra, still keeps kashra at the head of the How am I going to ensure that the agricultural sector won't collapse? It? So it's a national concern or a particular concern. There's no way out. If you have a national concern, it's going to become diluted. Your hechsherim will drop because you want to create national coverage. You want to have the top hechshir in the world, so you don't care about national coverage. You just care about the badat's hechshir for people that want it, or with your conversion. If you're just concerned with the 
integrity of the conversion that you are supervising, so then you ramp up the expectations. But if you have a national issue and you say, there are hundreds of thousands of people that want to be Jewish, but don't want to be converted halachically, and how do I... You can't flex halacha, but you have to find some. So that's that's really the major difference. So if you're a Haredi, again, I'm not I'm not putting words into any Haredi approach, but a Haredi type thinker living here and say, we are here in Gira Mordechai, we can't allow the missionaries to open because it's going to contaminate our community. And I'm still saying, yeah, but I have to worry about the entire state of Israel, and I'd rather take one for the team and let them open in my own backyard because I know that whatever costs will prices will pay, they'll still be better at a national level. And the third issue this story demonstrates is the ability to think step two and step three. You're right. So day one, it's going to be tough to see the missionary open up and give up more. I see the big sign. Mike, the missionary, opens his front shop at a strip mall, whatever missionaries do when they announce themselves. But learn to think two, three steps beyond. Learn to think what's going to happen day three, figuratively, day four. Day four, we'll take care of it. Life is, life is a marathon. Life has stages to it. It will prevent them from opening in other locations. The ability Ravonita was an incredible, incredible Roas Hanolat. He'd be telling us certain things, fads, trends in society, problems that he de- detected, and then five years later, everyone would be talking about it. He had a very unique capacity to try to think about time and experience, not just immediately what the needs are right now, but in swaths of time and processes across as long as possible, not just five years, because he had historical perspective. Here's a person that grew up in Hungary and in, uh, in a cheder, went through the Holocaust, fought in the Independence War, marched in the Suez Canal in 67, was a high-ranking member, started basically the concept of Hester, built it. I mean, when you, when you have life's experiences, you're able to, to see how life unfolds and not just what's going to happen today at 1230 if the missionaries open up shop. So this story about the missionaries in Hebron and Hebron Yeshiva highlights, one, counterintuition, Two, national concern, not just concern with your own backyard. And three, the ability to sense long-term equations, not just immediate needs. Okay. So, length of speech. When you speak, should you speak extravagantly and lengthily, or should you speak succinctly and quickly and briefly? You think it's just a technical difference, difference of people's nature, but I think there is some deep, of course, psychology, but not just psychology, but messages about religion. So here's the story of Amitabh would tell us. He was always very uh, proud, but always very open that his father wasn't a big rabbi or anything. He didn't come from that scion of teachers. Ravarn, of course, the son-in-law of Rabbi His father was a very, very well-known teacher. Amitabh, I don't remember what his father's profession was, but he was a simple worker. He was a workman. And Rav Amitav would tell us that he would sit around the family table and people would tell stories, information, opinion. And Rav Amitav's father would go, Ah, ooh, no, oi vavoy. Had like this one word responses. Father wasn't a man of a lot of words. And Rav Amitav said, I learned my entire world was shaped by listening to my father's responses. Nothing his father wrote, not long theses or doctorates about life. He didn't quote any poems. He wasn't very uh, uh, long-winded. But just from his father's responses, Aramitel said, my entire worldview was shaped. I was just listening to the way my father responded. And this became one of Aramitel's hallmarks. And in many ways, one of the key differences with, between himself and Rav Lichtenstein, um, 
And it, it's almost impossible to explain how they complemented each other, but they really did because they were so different in so many ways, and it provided a roundedness that you could feel comfortable sometimes being like Ravarin, and sometimes being like Ravarintal, sometimes being very, very driven to be an angel, dissatisfied with any achievement, realizing how little you achieve, no matter how much you achieve, realizing how high the bar is. And then sometimes you could just allow yourself to be a human being and, and accept yourself and accept your flaws. And to a degree, this is something that's reflected in how you speak. On the one hand, I'm not talking about speaking to you, personal conversation. When I speak in Torah, when I give a shir, when we're davening, how could it not be long? Ilu finu malay shira kayam so An hour isn't enough. Two hours isn't enough. Three hours isn't enough. When Rav Luchensin said slichos, when he was in Avel, he davened slichos in Rosh Hashanah. Slichos were three hours long. It's Rosh Hashanah. Could you stop reciting a Kaddish Baruch was malchus? Ravarin would give shir. Friday nights, an hour, an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, sikhot. We're talking about a Kodesh Baruch Hu. How could you stop? What could be more important? Shirim would, would be endless. And Rav Amital said, you know what? There's another person on the other side listening to you. And that person may not have that much patience. And it's not just the patience. Everyone will pitch in. Everyone will sit there and listen because it's the Rosh Hashiva. And everyone will be fine with it. But it's... It, these are human beings, and, and if you speak for two hours, then you're, it's not part of their humanity. We don't listen to each other for two-hour speeches. We speak to each other very, very briefly. You want to try to feel recognizable. So it's a human conversation. I'm talking to you, not just delivering. And I, it's not as if one is wrong and one is right. It's just it's different phases and different modes of religious experience. And we created modalities for us to feel comfortable expressing those different modalities. I remember one one Shabbos, I think it was a Yuval Shurla or one of the really important Bachram in the yeshiva got up to give a Dvar Torah on Shabbos. And it was a Rav Amital Shabbos. He was sitting there in the lunchroom. And he gave a 30-second Dvar Torah. Got up, said an idea, sat down. Now, Rav Amital didn't like to comment on the Dvar Torah because it wasn't, it was intimidating. So he just basically listened to the Dvar Torah and the Chadarachel. Every once in a while he had a comment if he disagreed or strongly agreed something to add. That Shabbos, he got up and he said, I want to thank you for giving that to our Torah. That was the perfect of our Torah. Who needs an introduction? Who needs a summary? Who needs a middle summary? Who needs a conclusion? You get up, say your point. Great. The next Shabbos was a Ravarin Shabbos. And also an important bacher. I forget who it was, but someone who's a big rabbi today, I'm sure. I forget who it was, got up and gave it to our Torah, but he didn't time it properly. He gave it in front of Ravarin. He gave it 30, 40 seconds of our Torah. And Ravarin also very rarely interceded in remark, but he got up and he said, you call that a Tvartara? Where's the introduction? Where's the summary? Where's the conclusion? Where's the interim summary? It was just a different feel. And Rav Amitav would always needle Rav Luchensin about it. He says, what message could be so important that you can't fit it into 20 minutes, uh, 20, uh, 10 minutes or 20 minutes? I remember there was something called the Chaburos, which was it's the equivalent of today's Kolol Govoa for upper tier Talmidim. And in those days, the Chaburos is called Chaburos. So, Ravaran would give two shiurim out of every three, and the third shiur would be given by one of the kolo people, one of the members of the chaburus, which is... So what happened was, you'd learn with your chaburus, so you'd prepare a sugya. I said, my chaburus says at that point, one year ago, Mordechai Friedman, we prepared the sugya together. 
And then one of us delivered in front of six or seven members, and the other one delivered in front of six or seven. The Chabur split up, and you get a chance to deliver a share and get feedback. And Ravaran sat in on one of them, and Ravaran sat in on the other of them. So Ravaran would give very thorough critique, and some of the critique he gave from the Chabur is like, delivered are still with me today. I still try to build my shirim based on some of the pedagogic critique he gave me. With Rav Amital, he didn't give any critique. One thing mattered. If you finish the shir before 1 o'clock, he was the happiest man in the world, was the greatest shir in the world. If you finish after 1 o'clock and you took a little time out of lunch, like <laughs> start stopping you and stuff. And Rav Amital would always go to 1.20. They would always go to 1. We, we didn't eat lunch. I mean, in those days, it wasn't food. They had very limited food in the yeshiva. And the yeshiva ran out of food. And we'd miss lunch daily or, or, or every other day. So it was just a different feel, and it made Torah feel. It also means you don't always have to say everything on your mind. So even partial, the, the power of silence, the power of thinking carefully before you respond, like his father's story was, really, ooh, ah, voo, no. It, 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 um, think, think about your communication with people, not just through words. And you don't always have to feel if I don't say more. Sometimes people feel that they don't do more and say more and, and say more to him and say an extra feel and say the extra and that they're less. And Rav said, you're not less. doesn't mean you're less of an Ovid Hashem. It's just a different mode. And when Chazal say, emor ma'at say harbe, so we typically assume that means the proportion between speech and, and action. Some people speak a lot and don't actually execute or transition into the world of action. That's what Chazal is saying. That at least there should be a proportion between your speech and your promises and your execution. But there's a value of emor ma'at on its own, even without continuing vasei harbe, just emor ma'at, just sometimes you say a lot, sometimes you say less, and Ravalinfel provided us with that, sometimes less is more. You don't always have to be, especially in the world of religion, A, because there are people on the other side, and it's not just that you're inconveniencing them, and it's not midos, but you're creating a world of Torah that's large and laborious and long, and it should be that, but sometimes it becomes a little bit detached, because that's not how we speak. And think about your communication, not just your words. And think carefully about how you're going to say something. Armitel was really an artist. Art is a communication. So this is the story he told us about his father, who wasn't that much of a Talmud I don't remember what he was. It seemed like he was a workman, but he sat around the table, and his responses of Armitel felt taught him his entire worldview, but it also taught us through Armitel that you don't always have to be the longest speaker in the program. If I say anyone, I don't want to speak that long. Okay. He's playing tricks on me, so I'm not sure whether this was in the late 80s or the early 90s, but the timing on this isn't that important. But there was a team of Hadassah University doctors from the medical school that wanted to conduct, in the late 80s or the early 90s, wanted to conduct an experiment about the effect of reduced cholesterol on a diet. This was a cholesterol-related issues and hazards were first emerging. Today we all know about them and everyone has to watch their cholesterol. It was at a much earlier stage. And they needed an institutional set of lab rats. They needed large groups of people to perform the tests on. Now in any research world, that's one of the bottlenecks of research. How do you find people willing to participate in your study? So today you pay people, you have uh, Facebook groups. Any, any graduate student has to find psychology, medicine, you have to find, um, it, for your field study, you have to find a, 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 a placebo group, a population, a control. It's really hard to find. And here, it's a very, very difficult. It's one thing if you're a psychologist or a social worker or an educator, you want to conduct a poll, you want to 
because you brought people in for five, ten minutes, or it's your medical school, and here, this is a long investigation, a long um, research project that would take over the course of the year, and you have to chart people's cholesterol level and feed them certain types of foods. So how do you, in your wildest dreams, how do you can have a controlled environment, you control people are eating, they're not going to eat food on the outside, and you can be able to test them. So you really need an institution that's willing to cooperate. That's really inconvenient. And which of all the institutions in Israel participated in the Hadassah Medical Center study on limitations of cholesterol? So before I tell you the Ravamital story, I distinctly remember, for us, the stakes were much more important than long-term medical impact. For us, the stakes were, we were really stuck. This was when you should have very little food. So we were trying to game the system with the food that would be prepared for the rats of the Hadassah Medical Center study would it be better than the drivel we were given in yeshiva. This is big debates we had in the best matter. Should we join the study? Should we not join the study? Not yeshiva. The yeshiva joined the study, but the yeshiva then took volunteers because they need a control group. They were eating regular yeshiva grubs. So, so there's big, big questions in the late 80s. Is it better to be part? And these were not simple questions. This was life and death questions because people were starving left and right. So the Hadassah food looked a little better, but we didn't really know without cholesterol, would it taste good, would it not taste good? Anyway, the yeshiva joined the study, and it was really inconvenient. For a year, when you lined up to get your food, there were two lines. There was the regular food, and there was the Hadassah study food. And it was different, I think it was more plentiful, but it was really different. They were limiting cholesterol, and every month they took blood from the boys in yeshiva. Of course, they were under the study. They were not under the study, and they took blood. And it was really inconvenient. Um, but the yeshiva, and, and we were all intrigued by the issue. And then at the end of the year, then at the end of the year, convocation or gathering assembly just to review the results and to thank everyone who was involved. And Ravitel gave a very beautiful speech and he mentioned two points which were very, very striking. He said, first of all, um, the Adasa medical team offered the boys to be paid for their work. You pay anyone who's involved in a research project. Not big bucks, but you pay them for their effort, for their time. Ravitel refused to allow the boys to accept any money. This is not the profile of Yeshiva Bakr. If this is for Tikkun Olam and this is for medical research, then Yeshiva Bakr should be engaged in this process and in this agenda without being paid for it. This is our mitzvah, and this is who we are as B'nai Yeshiva. And to me, that reflected, Rav Amitav was always very concerned about how Yeshiva Bakr would be seen by the outside world, in particular because he was launching Hezder as a movement. He wasn't just launching Yeshiva's Hezder. Remember the, the original Hezder Yeshiva that existed before Yeshiva Haratzion was pretty much Hezder B'Dyeved. It's not meant to be a lachachil. It's not meant to represent anything larger in Israeli society. But Gush was meant to represent what the concept of Hezder Lachachila was. And in particular, that to be sold to the secular world because you were trying to justify abbreviated army service. These boys go to the army for three years and the Hezder boys only go for a year and a couple months. So what is this thing called Torah? What is this thing called Yeshiva? What is this thing called the Yeshiva Bachar that's going to serve in the army? We take it for granted, A, because Hezder has already become established, B, because Talmud Torah has become so established in the country. But for example, Rav Amitav would tell boys, and for many, many years people abused this policy, you would tell boys that if you don't make it to Yeshiva menu, which then was 6.30, you should dive it in your rooms. Why? Because the notion of mass migration of Yeshiva Bachrim to the Yeshiva Minyan, he felt, would speak negatively and reflect negatively upon Yeshiva Bachrim. Especially in those days where the country went to bed much earlier before internet, TV ended at 10 o'clock at night, 10.30 at night, 11 at night. So everyone went to bed by 11 o'clock, and everyone got up much earlier. It was a much earlier rising country 15, 20, 30 years ago. 
the early minyana was 6, 6.15. You could barely get a minyan up to 7.20. And there wasn't this factory where people were constantly making minyans, only one shul. So all of a sudden, the last minyan, the 7.20 minyan, is populated and stocked by yeshiva bachim. He thought that would speak negatively about the profile of yeshiva bachim that we're trying to project. Um, yeshiva, as you know, most yeshivas in the world, they're off for Chodesh Nisan and they resume Chodesh, Chodesh Iyar. Not in Yeshiva, they're off for Tishrei from Yom Kippur and they resume Rosh Chodesh Cheshva, not in Yeshiva Haratzion. We resume Chavzayin Nisan, Chavzayin, which is again a throwback to Ravamital's policy that when the boy's in the army, when you're in the army, you don't get a month off, if at all. If you get off, you get off a couple of days, maybe a week. So all of a sudden, when you're in the army, you're on the clock. And you have a week off and you're running back and forth. When you're in Yeshiva, Pina Colada is on the beach. Take a month off, take it to take it easy. He thought that would reflect negatively on Yeshiva and the role of Torah. So he's very, very concerned, especially with moral issues. He would often quote with Cook to us saying that the major reason that people are alienated from religion is when they see religious people associated with immoral and unethical acts and they're not able to synchronize an inner moral voice with religion and its messages. And for that, that's very, and Cook speaks about it. So Valintel felt that Yeshiva Bakram had to answer to a higher standard and live a more morally sensitive and examined life. So that was the first thing. He didn't say this whole Torah. He just said that the boys are not allowed to take any money. The second thing that struck me about his comments were, he said, why did I allow this to happen in Yeshiva? Why was I so embracing? He said, because all these professors who participate in this study, they were all high-ranking professors and doctors in Hadassah. And again, in, in, in those days, the Israel medical establishment was not as advanced research-wise and certainly treatment-wise as it is today. Today, people are flying from all over the world, in many cases, for treatment in Israel. At least the treatment is of the highest standard. Sometimes the patient care is still to be desired for the actual procedures. So people look at Israel as a hub of medical technology, of advanced medical procedures, one of the highest standards. In the late 80s, it wasn't that way. Late 80s, people were leaving Israel to have surgery overseas. They were flying to France and flying to Europe and flying to the United States to have their surgeries. So Ravamitel said these were all doctors who could have easily bolted the country and gotten high-ranking positions in the top medical institutions across the globe. And yet they decided to stay in Israel despite the challenges to the medical establishment, and he wanted to honor them and show them his respect by allowing them to participate in the study in yeshiva. And Ravamitel had tremendous respect even for non-religious Jews who are Mosin Nefesh for Am Yisrael or Mosin Nefesh for Eretz Yisrael. And this extended to soldiers and generals. He was the representative of the Hezder Yeshivas for many, many years vis-a-vis the army. He developed very, very warm relationships with many, many high-ranking secular generals. Whenever we needed a favor from the army, like a guy needed to get into this section of the army or that section of the army, or to have this assignment, so we went through the reps, and then when it didn't work out, Avamita picked up the phone and called like the head of the army services. Oh, yeah, sure, just tell him to go there and tell him to go here. Again, that's protexia. It's like a point of the conversation. But the ability to respect Jews who are not from but who are most in for ideals in general and for the ideals of the state of Israel was very much on display by human body. Again, it's very inconvenient. They set up their own private kitchen in the kitchen. There was a certain area where they made Hadassah medical research food. And it was a very, very, and the lines were different, but Ramitel felt for these two reasons he wanted in his yeshiva. Okay. So it speaks about, on the one hand, yeshiva bachim and how, what their profile should be morally, and also spoke to respecting 
professionals in general, people who accomplish things that are morally driven, in fact, you make a lot of money, is that you take a profession that's moral and you excel in it, in particular in the state of Israel, especially in those days. Kaddish Tavik.